0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Today is another episode of our new series, There's No Planet B, where we want to share everything you need to know about the climate crisis. So on previous episodes, we've touched on why we're in a climate crisis and also the effects of the crisis. And today in our third episode, we want to explore climate governance, the processes involved in building global-scaled climate solutions and how these sorts of international policies are created. Yet despite having, you know, protocols accords, um, COPS action plans, the dire warnings and scientific consensus have failed to enact much change. So we want to explore why. And joining me to do that is Associate Professor Dr. Helena Vaki. She's from the Department of International and Strategic Studies and the, at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Malaya. And she's also part of the team behind Bite Size Climate Action. She's a co-developer of that. Welcome, Helena. How are you today? Thank you so much, Juliet. I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. So yes, I did mention the two previous episodes we did and those were also with the co-developers of Bite Size Climate Action. So we had uh, Dr. Shiba Chinoli um, for the first episode and we had Dr. Matthew Asheville for the second episode. And, uh, you know, I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to do this series also was I was inspired by you guys and your Bite Size Climate Action. So thank you for that. Thank Um, you. That's fantastic. (laughs) So now um, we want to talk a little bit about climate governance, right? So I think we know uh, I think it was just last week, right? The last uh, sort of uh, report from the IPCC came out. Um, and from that report, the questions uh, that scientists say is whether gov- governments will step up to the challenge with everything that they've laid out, right? Action plans, all these sorts of things. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk about climate governance today. I guess, you know, for starters, since this is an explainer series, can you explain what multi-level climate governance is?
1: Okay, so let's start with multi-level governance in general. So multi-level governance is the idea that governance should not just be restricted to government actors. Uh, So it should also include other actors, so like businesses and civil society across all levels. So when we look at, uh, we talk about multi-level, we think about it vertically. So that means there would be local, state, national, regional, international levels, all from the bottom to the top, and also horizontally, meaning all of these other sectors and actors, civil societies, businesses, NGOs. Um, So this actually reflects the reality um, of politics and government and governance basically which you know um, all of these different people and different actors try to influence each other, either uh, international level, national level, and also um, all these other non-state actors as well. When we look specifically into multi-level climate governance, uh, this actually is rooted in the Rio Earth Summit 1992. Um, This concept was introduced as a new model to um, introduce all these different actors as a role to play in sustainable development um, under the Agenda 21, if you remember. Uh, So, and this has been extended to climate governance And it basically tries to explain the
0: architecture of global
1: climate governance that involves all these different actors as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So you you mentioned actors, right? Maybe you can help explain who are all these actors involved in these sorts of climate-related decisions.
1: Sure. So... um, For actors, we always first think about government actors, so public sectors. So these are the ones who we call policymakers. So they would have a good sense of the overall policy and framework of the country. So they can see actually how climate governance can or cannot, or what are the challenges to fit into the existing structure. So they are the ones who will go to the cops to negotiate for the country. And at the national level, they will be leading the climate policy decision-making, and they'll be advising the politicians and so forth. We also have the local govern, uh, governments. So they are the ones closest to the ground. They experience the problems earlier, firsthand, and they are the ones who understand the issues the best. So they are really important because they are the ones who will be informing the central government um, on the issues affecting the people, and they will be the ones taking the lead in implementation of these projects on the ground. Okay. Uh, we also have the private sector. Uh, so they, uh, the private sector is often seen as the kind of the major drivers of climate change, of pollution, of degradation, um, and all of these problems. Uh, But perhaps because of this or despite this, uh, private sector actually can be really important in climate solutions uh, because you know climate mitigation adaptation is expensive in its capital expertise, in its innovation, and it also has a lot of risk. So this is where private sector actually has the capacity to contribute. Uh, we also have the academia, so like uh, me and my colleagues. Mm-hmm. So we actually uh, try to advise all these other actors. Uh, so local scientists will do research on uh, you know local trends and and changes and developments and this localized data will help um, the actors, the government agencies, make better decisions. Okay. We also have international networks that can sort of uh, be a conveyor belt for international ideas to be localized. And you know we talk about the IPCC later. Scientists in Malaysia as well. Uh, we we would represent not me but we were uh, the scientists like. Uh, those who will represent uh, Malaysia at the IPCC as authors or reviewers. Finally, we have the civil society. So, you know, voice of the people, they represent our interests. Um, They could be very localized. They could be part of a broader global network. They may have very narrow interests like air pollution or forest conservation, or they can have really broad interests. Uh, Basically, their role is to highlight to the government and other actors things that they think are not being prioritized enough uh, that should be paid more attention to. And some NGOs, they are very good at working very closely with governments and other actors very constructively but some also they may take a bit of a more confrontational or a combative stance. So those are some of the varieties of actors which are um, relevant today.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if anyone's been reading uh, the news lately, we've been hearing a lot about the IPCC, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, Also, you know, when we're talking about these things, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change or the UNFCCC, those those names come up quite a bit, right? Maybe you can help explain why they were created and what sort of functions they serve.
1: Sure. So the IPCC, um, ironically, actually, it started out from something that was happening in the U.S., I say ironically because we know the, the, the politics involved in U.S. involvement in uh, climate change governance yeah. today. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, well, in 1988, actually, back in the day, uh, NASA scientists gave a testimony to the Senate that climate change is already really bad to cause really bad weather uh, weather events. Mm-hmm. And very importantly, that uh, they indicated that this was caused by human activity. Uh, so in reaction to this, uh, the U.S. government was looking to create some sort of convention to agree on on restricting or controlling greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so this actually led to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this IPCC is a body where the scientists are the key. So they are both experts and they're also representatives of their countries. So they're sort of a hybrid uh, organization, scientific and political organization. So all these experts from all around the world, they are divided into different working groups. And what their job is, is they review uh, scientific literature and other publications so that they can arrive at a consensus about the state of knowledge about climate change because there's so much science out there. So we need a consensus to be able to make good decisions. Um, so they've produced their assessment reports and they also create a common methodology for greenhouse grass inventories for all the countries to use. Okay. So that's the IPCC. That's the scientific part. So, the UNFCCC, so that's kind of the, I would say, the political part. Uh, So, the UNFCCC was born during the Rio Earth Summit that I mentioned mentioned earlier, 1992. Um, Over here, they negotiated and they signed this UNFCCC. Um, So, based on the IPCC's report, okay, so they decided that this treaty was needed. um, And basically, they committed signatory governments to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions to prevent more anthropogenic interference with the Earth's climate system. So um, this UNFCCC, it came into force in 1994. um, And now we have about 197 signatories all UN member states and some observer parties. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these parties, they would take part in the COPS, uh, which are the conference of the parties. And the UNFCCC is also the name of the secretariat which supports this convention. So those are the two big ones, the scientific side as well as the political side. Mm
0: -hmm. And all of that kind of comes together in the COP process, right? As you mentioned, how are these um, uh, international climate change negotiations actually carried out?
1: So this COP process is really the key. Um, so the, all the parties to the UNFCCC, they would meet every year. Uh, and the first COP meeting uh, was in Berlin in 1995, a few years after the establishment of UNFCCC. And the next one is uh, COP 27 will be in Egypt. Right. Uh, so um, the venue kind of rotates across all the regions, you know, for uh, sort of equity and representation. Um, And at these COPS, representatives from all the states, their job is to, number one, review the implementation of the UNFCCC and any of the other legal instruments that has been adopted, so like the Kyoto Protocol or the Paris Agreement. They would also review the national communications, the inventories uh, that has been submitted by the parties, and based on all this, they will assess what is the progress. Are are we on track or not to uh, achieve the objectives of the UNFCCC? So this COP process uh, usually lasts for a few weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, They would have a pre-COP, a pre-sessional period. Usually this is when smaller groups will meet and they will strategize. So like the lesser developed countries, the African group, G77. Uh, So this will be the chance for them to come together and sort of strategize how Uh, these groups want to approach the bigger uh, negotiations. During the COP proper, there will be open door and closed door events. And this is where the representatives will attend them and they will negotiate on behalf. Um, Last year, COP26, there were four tracks. Uh, The first two were more formal, so they would have Uh, The process and negotiation track, this is where the actual formal negotiations take place, where the heads of government will come and get involved. They would also have some mandated events and workshops and special events organized by the secretariat. Uh, These are also quite formal. They are like review meetings, working groups. And they would have more public-facing events like presidency events and global climate action events. Uh, They're sort of also side events as well, which we will talk about later, hopefully.
0: Okay, all right. Let's just go for one quick break, Helena. When we come back, let's find out, you know, um, all these other phrases that we hear are during the COP, you know, CBDR and all of that. I'm speaking today to Dr. Helena Vaki. She is, uh, she's an Associate Professor at the Department of International and Strategic Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Malaya. She's also a co-developer of the Bite Size Climate Action Group. Uh, we're talking about climate governance in today's episode of There's No Planet B. We'll be back after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It is our third episode of There's No Planet B. Uh, That's a series where we want to share Everything you need to know about the climate crisis. In our first episode, we spoke about why we're in a climate crisis. In our second episode, we spoke about the effects of the climate crisis. Today, we're tackling the topic of climate governance. So joining me today is Associate Professor Dr. Helena Vaki. She's from the Department of International and Strategic Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Malaya. She's also a co-developer of Bite Size Climate Action. She's helping us break it all down. Um, so, you know, before the break, Helena, you were sort of, uh, you mentioned how COP works pretty much, right? And you know, all the different people involved, what actually happens at these meetings, how these uh, negotiations are carried out, right? Um, and, you know, when we speak about COP, uh, I think these phrases are commonly heard, right? Um, common but dif- differentiated responsibilities, CBDR, and loss and damage, l um, Maybe you can help explain what this is and also their significance. Okay,
1: so CBDR, Common by Differentiated Responsibilities. Uh, this has been around uh, from the very beginning uh, in Rio. Um, it was introduced as a very important principle to climate governance. Uh, So it's all about this idea uh, or this acknowledgement that states, uh, they do have a shared obligation to address um, climate uh, climate destruction, climate change, uh, but at the same time it denies equal responsibility to all states, uh, based on the polluter pays principle. Mm. So uh, it basically agrees that developed country parties should take the lead in addressing climate change simply because of their larger historical responsibility and also because of the resources that are more available to them uh, so they can more effectively address the problem. So this uh, principle, until today, it's been the key. So back in uh, back then, uh, the signatories were divided into annex categories based on this level of development that kind of indicates where they stand in the CBDR arrangement. So we had Annex 1 countries, which are developed industrialized countries and economies in transition. Annex 2, which are also developed countries, but with special financial responsibilities towards the developing countries. And non Annex 1, which are developing countries. So Malaysia is actually a non Annex 1 country. Okay. So these non-Nx1 countries they can actually volunteer to become Nx1 countries when they are ready. So that's the CBDR. And um, over the years, uh, it's kind of it's still there. It's kind of evolved a bit. Uh, certain things have been more important uh, in this. And one of it that has become more prominent is this idea of uh, LND, loss and damages. So um, this was basically the big buzzword in COP26, um, and it's linked directly to the CBDR. Uh, so basically, this is all about uh, acknowledging that some countries, some developing countries, are particularly vulnerable and they should be taken care of. Uh, So uh, it all began with the alliance of the small island states. So they said that, you know, we need some special means to address loss and damages that we are suffering from these small island states um, associated with climate change. Uh, So when you talk about loss and damages... Losses is understood as irreversible. So loss of lives, species, or habitats. Sure. Uh, but damages uh, can be repaired. So they're like roads or stuff like that. So the idea was that if the planet uh, becomes two or three degrees warmer, this is going to have a great scale of loss and damages, especially for these particular countries. So uh, what what these countries were pushing for in COP26 and even before was that they needed special arrangements uh, providing financial and technical means to them um, as also the ones who are most vulnerable as well as the least responsible. So this really ties back to justice, uh, climate justice, and also human rights. So um, COP19, a couple of years back, a few years back, they did introduce this Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damages. We started this conversation uh, really seriously. So they looked at slow onset events like, um, like sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's slow. We don't see it immediately, but it's very. It, it really does affect all these countries in particular. Non-economic losses, climate displacement, uh, people would have to move because they are no, their places are no longer uh, habitable, and also risk management. But over the years, uh, these vulnerable countries were not very happy with this with the progress of this you know we have this fiji clearinghouse for risk transfer but basically it's just a repository for information Uh, nothing really that much so what uh, these countries are demanding is that you need a massive increase in financial support and other types of support to really help them um, manage adaptation and also to reduce the loss and damages that they will suffer so these two are the big uh sort of um
0: uh, anchor concepts now in climate uh, in, in climate governance. Mm-hmm. Am I right in saying that these these are the sorts of discussions also that end up being quite contentious? Uh, in these in these uh, discussions in these uh, negotiations,
1: definitely. So uh, these are
0: all, these are take a lot of time
1: actually. Usually, mm-hmm. uh, not only within the COPs, but also outside. Uh, everybody will be discussing it from experts to NGOs. Um, it's a very
0: important uh, conversation point. Yeah, I mean, right down to the exact word that is used, yeah. right? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> and yeah. and that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, we hear about protocols, we hear about the courts, uh, as you mentioned, COPs, action plans, agreements. There are so many different international commitments that have emerged through the years, right, to try and sort of address this this really monumental challenge. As far as you're concerned, what are the most important ones that, you know, uh, we, regular folk, we need to know about? Mm. So, um probably these two people
1: have heard about. So the Kyoto Protocol, there's even a Malaysian ban that's called Kyoto Protocol yes. and uh, <laughs> the Paris Agreement as well. So these are the two ones that we would have heard about, uh, but whether or not we know the details is a different story. La. So um, I'll start with the Kyoto Protocol. So a protocol is basically an instrument which uh, gives supplementary provisions to a previous treaty. So the uh, the UNFCCC is the treaty and the, when this protocol was brought about to uh, give supplementary supplementary provisions to support this treaty. So, how it all came about was uh, the second IPCC report uh, found that you know uh, what what was agreed upon under the UNFCCC was not adequate. So, the Kyoto Protocol was established. And it established legally binding obligations under international law for developed countries to increase their goals uh, of reducing overall emissions. Mm-hmm. So they had a phase one, phase two and different goals. So uh, under the Kyoto Protocol as well, they, they created market mechanisms to help countries meet these goals. So they created a tradable market for carbon in both Annex 1 and non annex 1 countries. And that was supposed to really help things along. But as a legally binding agreement, it was a bit harder to get ratification. So the agreement only came into force in 2005, actually, quite about about eight years after the Kyoto Protocol was actually established. Okay. So um, the problem with uh, the Kyoto Protocol was that even though quite a lot of countries, they met their targets, a lot of them didn't. Um, and at that time as well, we will remember that China and India began developing really rapidly yeah. and they began contributing as well to uh, a lot of emissions as well. So um, because of all this, uh, basically by the middle of phase two, uh, global emissions actually increased instead of decreased. So the Kyoto pro- the Protocol was not really effective in that way. Uh, Short, long story short. So what we have today is the Paris Agreement, which was trying to maybe... uh, plug the gaps of the Kyoto Protocol. And this was ha- this happened in 2015 and it came into force uh, one year later. So that was quite good compared to the protocol. It took quite a lot of time. Mm. And uh, basically, uh, this was based on the fifth IPCC report. And the Paris Agreement committed to limit uh, average global warming to two degrees from pre-industrial levels. Uh, This is something that we've talked about quite a lot. And also to try our best to keep it to actually 1.5 degrees. And uh, 194 states have ratified it. And the Paris Agreement uh, is quite different from the Kyoto Protocol in a few ways. Uh, number one, instead of just focusing on developed countries, uh, all parties under the agreement were supposed to um, were obliged to decrease, decrease their emissions. And instead of sort of a top-down uh, process, the Paris Agreement was a bottom-up thing where the countries could set their own targets based on their capabilities, which is what we have heard about, which is called the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs. So this was meant to promote more ownership and reduce the likelihood of countries just giving up Halfway, which is what happened in Kyoto. So those are the two big, um, the two big, uh, well,
0: agreements lah, that uh, we we should know uh, in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, we do remember. I mean, the Paris Agreement is something that I think most people know about. We talk about it a lot. But how does it actually work? Mm.
1: So the Paris Agreement it works uh, on a few cycles, quite similar to Kyoto as well. Uh, it works on five-year cycles. So every five years uh we are supposed to have a look again and increase uh, our climate targets and adjust accordingly based on the NDC. So that's the concept. Uh, One thing different is that these obligations are not legally binding. So, however, the interesting thing about Paris is that the process is legally binding. So countries are legally bound. Uh, They have legal obligations to regularly and transparently report their progress according to what has been standardized, this progress. So it's a bit uh, a tweak over there to try and get countries to to be more uh, committed to it. So we are currently in the first uh, NDC reporting period. So 2020, 2021, we will remember that countries communicated uh, their NDCs. Malaysia as well, we communicated in 2021. uh, their confirmed NDCs to the UNFCCC. So what will happen now is that in the middle of the cycle, 2023, uh, we will have to report on our progress. And this will be the basis of a global stocktake. Based on everybody's report, um, it will lead... And then this one, after we have this stock take, we will kind of calculate and see how we are going. And this will lead to the recommendations for the next cycle. Uh, So that's how it works. From one cycle to the next, everybody is supposed to commit and we'll see how everybody is going and then we'll go to the next stage. So... Um, Other things are quite similar, you know, to help all these countries achieve these targets. So there are financial, technical, capacity building support for developing countries especially. And there's also been a commitment for about $100 a year in climate finance. And this is supposed to continue at least until the next cycle, which is 2025.
0: Okay, so th- there's a lot of negotiations that need to happen. There's a lot of give and take that's happening. What role does politics play in all of this? Actually, you know, because I mean, we've we've heard this before. The atmosphere knows no borders. Uh, climate change is a global commons problem. So, assigning responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions um, over time and across countries has, I guess, you know, proven quite difficult, right? You mentioned earlier about uh, responsibilities and things like that. How much have these issues sort of impacted much of the international climate change? Policy uh, policies over the past few decades, you know, because th- this is something else that I came across when I was reading about this, you know, two themes seem to run across the story of global climate change governance. One is how to differentiate between countries' responsibilities to respond to the challenge. And the other is sort of the quest for a dynamic mechanism that is effective enough from a scientific perspective and encourages sufficient participation from the largest emitters, right? While also ensuring universal participation. I mean, do you agree with that statement? Like those are the main two themes. What's your take on it?
1: Yeah, definitely that is the... Prevailing challenge and um, politics doesn't make it any easier. Uh, so definitely, uh, climate negotiations is become more and more political over time, and this again ties back to the CBDR principle and this sort of uh, push and pull between the developing and the developed and the rapidly developing countries as well. Um, So the role of these developing countries is very complicated. So we as a developing country, we don't have the historical responsibility um, of uh, climate change, but we we do know that our current development comes alongside a lot of emissions as well. Emissions is usually coupled with development. So, uh, developed countries cannot ask us to stop developing because they were able to develop without any limitations. Uh, But it becomes very complicated as well when this, when really big countries like China and India are rapidly developing and also hugely emitting a lot of uh, um, emissions. Yeah. So this really makes climate negotiations very difficult, uh, especially when designing things like financial assistance or financial mechanisms. So the questions that are obviously uh, very contentious is who should qualify for these mechanisms? Are the annex categorizations still valid? So countries like China, they would not want to uh, sort of uh, reconsider their status from Annex, uh, you know, non Annex One to Annex One, because it would mean that they can no longer access these mechanisms. Uh, but developed countries, they will say that oh, they, we don't really want to commit to um, you know, any assistance uh, if we don't, if we think that certain countries do not deserve them. Uh, so this makes it very uh, difficult. And climate negotiations, of course, they do not exist in a vacuum. Uh, they are they are always interacting with other. Global global issues like security, economy, and trade. So for example, if we take US, um, a lot of their decisions uh, in global climate negotiations and governance are very much influenced by their national interest considerations, especially for example, um, uh, vis-à-vis China. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, of course, their rival global power. So a lot of these great power considerations uh, has played into U.S. decisions like not ratifying the Kyoto Protocol, leaving the Paris Agreement during Trump's presidency and all this. Um, we also have you know, national level politics uh, like in the U.S., lobby groups linked to the fossil fuel sector. These groups have been influencing the Senate on um, key decisions at the U.S. Um, I'll give one more example, which is a bit closer to home. So we can see how climate and trade can clash as well. So a lot of people probably would have heard of the the issues going on with uh, EU and palm oil. So the EU has been changing its regulations in relation to biofuels in line with their net zero commitments and other climate commitments. And this can actually potentially affect Malaysia's palm oil export market to the EU. So, you know, this has come with a lot of discussions about eco-colonialism, protectionism and even led to confrontations at the WTO. So as we can see, climate actions and governance is really very rarely straightforward, very rarely apolitical. So the key really is, as you say, finding that balance or finding that mechanism that is effective from a scientific perspective and inclusive enough to get everybody, not just the major emitters, uh, to commit to it. And for now, uh, the IPCC, the UNFCCC process is still our best bet, despite all of these politics that will come into play.
0: Okay. And how is Malaysia doing? You know, how, how is climate governance developed uh, both at the national level, but also at the international level? I mean, who are the actors involved in this? Mm.
1: So, uh, for Malaysia, Uh, Malaysia has been involved from the very beginning. Uh, At the international level, we have, uh, you know, we ratified the UNFCCC. We also ratified the Kyoto Protocol. Um, So I mentioned that under Kyoto Protocol, we were a non Annex One party, so we don't have any mandatory uh, commitments. Uh, We we are not legally bound, but we did pledge a voluntary reduction during Kyoto Protocol, and this was picked up again uh, under the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, And we pledged to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions intensity uh, per unit of GDP by 45% by 2030 uh, relative to emission intensity in 2005. It's quite worthy, but like you said, the words are important. Um, And 35% was uh, unconditional and 10% was conditional. Um, But in 2021, we actually submitted our update, which I mentioned earlier as well. It was basically the same, but we removed our unconditionality, meaning that we commit that our NDCs will be financed domestically. So that's a good step forward. Okay. At the national level, uh, we do have a policy document which is called the National Policy on Climate Change. uh, And this was in 2009. So this talks about mitigation, about adaptation, as well as capacity building. We have some other acts that are quite closely related. For example, the Environment Quality Act, 1974. And also quite a lot of uh, energy acts which have been quite closely linked. We have the National Green Technology Policy, 2009 and the Renewable Energy Act 2011 as well. So all this kind of make up the local uh, policy framework of uh, Malaysia. In terms of the main actors, uh, CASA, the Ministry of Environment and Water, is the key Also, with the Ministry of Science and Technology, they are the main ministries in charge of Malaysia's climate governance. Uh, We also have the uh, MyCAC, which is a Malaysian Climate Change Action Council, which was recently created, is chaired by uh, the PM, and they meet twice a year to discuss climate change issues and strategize towards our green development agenda. So that's uh, generally um, the status of climate governance right now Mm -hmm. in
0: Malaysia. I mean, it sounds really good. It sounds like we were quite on track. But I mean, are we actually on track on a national level? I mean, are there any gaps or uh, major gaps perhaps that we need to address in terms of the country's uh, climate governance framework?
1: Okay, so uh, of course, yeah, no, no no, country is perfect. There's always room for improvement. So some of the things that uh, we can quite easily notice in our framework is that uh, quite a lot of what we have now, our, our policies, our laws, they came into existence uh, before climate change became a global issue. So for example, like the EQA, the Environmental Quality Act, 1974, how many decades ago? Yeah. <laughs> so um, because of this, a lot of these policies uh, are not really in line with our current pledges to climate change, okay. uh, particularly after the recent one, uh, which is in Paris. Um, and uh, policies that do directly address climate change are also outdated. So the MPCC, the National uh, Policy on Climate Change, um, has not been revised since 20, 2009. So um, because of this, you know uh, our legal framework is, just, uh, is pretty rudimentary. There's no specific laws on climate change. We do have a bit in the Renewable Energy Act but that's about it but you know the mpcc and the eqa are currently under review so that's good and we also have a climate change act which is under under development as well as a formal national adaptation plan so we're moving in that direction so uh, it, it's it's coming yeah okay. um another issue with our constitution uh so there's actually no specific provision in our constitution that speaks about recognizing the public's right a healthful or a healthy environment. So this is kind of limiting in the sense of the of the concept, right? So are we responsible to our people to provide a healthy uh, environment? But uh, it all uh, this constitution all depends on how you interpret it. So there are certain articles that say that you know no person should be deprived of his his or her life or personal liberty. Uh, so this can be interpreted actually as including the right to a healthy environment. So some Malaysian judges has been actually interpreting it this way, and this should be encouraged. So that's also good. Uh, Another prominent um, limitation is, of course, our famous state-federal divide. Uh, So as we know, the environment and matters related to it, like land, forestry, agriculture, all this under the state list. So the states are responsible for it. But we also do have uh, an article that stipulates that in case of conflict between the state and federal law, the federal law should should prevail. But unfortunately, until now, there has been quite very minimal effort to amend uh, state-level legislations to match the NPCC principles that we have. Uh, so far, only one state, which is Sabah, has a state policy on the environment. And this does include some of our NPCC principles. So this is great. So Sabah should be used as a framework for other states to actually support our progress towards more um, a more updated, a more ambitious and a more urgent uh, governance system towards the climate.
0: Okay. All right. We'll just go for one more quick break, Helena. When we come back, let's find out how Malaysia is doing uh, as a developing country, what position we play in all of this. And speaking today to Dr. Helena Varki, she's an Associate Professor at the Department of International and Strategic Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Malaya. She's also a co-developer of Bite Size Climate Action. We're talking about climate governance today on our third episode of There's No Planet B. We'll come back and discuss more after this one more quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. This is another episode of our There's No Planet B series where we want to share everything you need to know about the climate crisis. Today joining me is Associate Professor Dr. Helena Vaki. She's from the Department of International and Strategic Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Malaya. She's also a co-developer of Bite Size Climate Action. We'll tell you a bit more about that after this. And she's helping to break down climate governance. It's been amazing, uh, Helena. You've broken it down so well for us. You know, it's a perfect explainer for For anyone who's curious, so before the break, you were explaining, um, I guess, you know, where we can sort of uh, improve in terms of our country's climate governance framework, right? But in terms of our Malaysia's role as a developing country, right, and in all of this, I mean, how how is our position uh, as a developing country? How does that all play into all of this?
1: Yeah, so Malaysia, we are still a developing country. (laughs) So we all know that under Wawasan 2020, we are supposed to be a developed country by now, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, But we are definitely what we could consider developing quickly. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of our climate commitments uh, continue to come from a position emphasizing our position as, you know, we're still developing, you know, so we need more time, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So one very clear example is our NDCs, our Nationally Determined Contributions. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, we've committed to um, non-conditional assistance. uh, So that's good. But our NDCs are continue to be anchored to emission intensity of GDP. So this allows for relative instead of absolute rates of reductions. And this is quite common among developing countries. You know, developing countries either they use this calculation or uh, baseline calculations. So we're still coming from this position that we need this kind of um, relative uh, calculations. True. So talk of reducing uh, GDP intensity uh, can actually obscure really important facts uh, that uh, actual emissions in Malaysia overall and per person are actually expected to be higher uh, at the NDC endpoint in 2030. Uh, this is because um, because of this relative to intensity. Uh, it means that we are developing very rapidly. So uh, we have to calculate our intensity based on our relative uh, development rate. So if we continue to increase our development rate, relatively, we can also produce more emissions as well. So when you calculate it that that, that way, at the end, we will still be producing more. And under our current NDC commitments, the average emissions per Malaysian in 2030 will be actually four times higher than what is needed on a global scale. So because we are developing at this very, very intense rate, uh, what we can produce under our NDCs becomes very, very high. So this is uh, not very good. And, you know, uh, despite all this, we are developing very quickly. Uh, Our government likes to point out things that, you know, we are relatively small, we are developing, we are only contributing about 1% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, This is true. But uh, from a population point of view, we only make up about zero point four percent of the population. So we are actually punching above our weight. Um, one of the other things that has always that is very popularly talked about now is this net zero concept. Mm-hmm. So under our 12th Malaysia plan, we have committed to become a carbon neutral or net zero country by twenty fifty at the earliest. So when you say at the earliest, it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, and without that climate change act that I talked about earlier, it does not actually contain any concrete targets. We are actually quite lagging behind a lot of ASEAN countries. They do have more concrete net zero targets than us. And uh, one more thing that I would like to add is, you know, uh, Petronas, our flagship GLC, is in the fossil fuel business. Um, so, of course, this is uh, has been very good for us in the past. It has been contributing a lot to our economy. Um, but Petronas has also announced uh, its aspiration to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But, <laughs> only on operations. So the International Energy Agency has actually said that if we really want to achieve global net zero by 2050, this actually involves no new fossil fuel exploration. So this, of course, is not good news for all the fossil fuel companies and all of the countries that are depending on fossil fuel as a way of uh, of, uh, development and also as a way of GDP. But we have to admit that this is, um, uh, is needed. for for the climate. So, for example, in Europe, Shell has been asked to limit their emissions not only from operations, but also from its product, from its uh, fossil fuels itself. So this is something that Petronas should be looking at as well. So, of course, development is important, but it must be sustainable at the same time. So we have to find that balance uh, to pursue development um, and, you know, at the same time, not hold us back from looking at more robust climate change and climate
0: governance action. Because there's no time anymore, right, for, for all of these sorts of discussions. We have to act now, you know, we have to come up with those concrete action plans right now. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. And and I'm just curious, you know, both nationally and internationally, are there sorts of legal architectures in place that allows us to reward or perhaps punish those who decrease or increase their greenhouse gas emissions? Hmm.
1: So, uh, in terms of reward and punishment, we kind of tried this out in Kyoto at the past, so internationally. So, Kyoto uh, actually had um, a, how to say, a penalty system. Uh, so, if an NX1 party did not comply with its emissions targets in the current uh, phase of compliance, uh, the country needs to actually make up the difference in the next uh, phase, uh, in the next compliance period. Uh, but this kind of kind of got lost in translation because each compliance period had to be negotiated individually. So each country who were punished or who had the penalty, they could actually just negotiate it in a way that it would be absorbed in their new target. Uh, So at the end, and and at the end, um, the countries could just abandon their targets if it all became too much, which was what happened, actually. So learning lessons from this, uh, the world has sort of moved on towards voluntary targets rather than prescribed measures. So um, the Paris Agreement, for example, has, like I mentioned, voluntary targets, but Uh, they commit to that process. Uh, The process is legally binding, but the targets are voluntary. They are uh, bottom-up. They are self-defined. But that being said, uh, these international conferences and these stock takes can actually be very powerful, indirect reward systems and maybe even punishment systems in themselves. So the fact that all these countries meet every year, the fact that they need to report regularly from a prescribed methodology Um, and in international relations we call this very much in the tradition of constructivism which points to the power of norms and socialization so through this whole process this conference and this court process the parties are socialized they are normalized to support and increase their commitments towards the achievement of these targets. So, even though there's no actual hard reward or punish mechanism, this whole process is supporting uh, this sort of peer pressure concept that can be very powerful. Nationally, uh, well, we don't really have a system because we don't have a National Climate Change Act yet. Uh, So it remains to be seen. uh, uh, We will see whether the National Climate Change Act will incorporate any sort of reward or punishment mechanism. So many other countries have started rewarding innovation and uh, putting a cost on pollution. So like uh, Canada is one example. So these are the kind of
0: countries that we should be modelling our uh, National Climate Change Act after. Okay. All right. I mean, in everything that you've described, you know, it it mentioned, I mean, at the start, you already explained who are the actors in these sorts of uh, processes, right? Um, I guess, you know, is there any opportunity for regular folk like me, you know, what sort of uh, opportunities are there for us to participate in these sorts of processes, if at all? Mm.
1: So in these formal climate change negotiations uh, in the COPS, only governments can negotiate, only governments can take decisions. But uh, there is also a role for observers. So this would be the non-state actors, the NGOs, the businesses, the city officials. Uh, and over the years, uh, especially now, you know, with globalization, with the rise of internet and all this, uh, it's been quite uh, more possible, more feasible, and more normalized to have this great uh, input from these observers. Uh, It's become much more inclusive nowadays. Uh, So as I mentioned earlier, when I explained about the cops, um, there are a lot of public-facing events, and there are also a lot of side events as well. So this is the side events are really important for non-state actors to voice out what they uh, feel and what they want to be included in the conversation. So these side events can include debates, presentations, workshops, uh, even exhibitions. And they can be organized either by UN agencies, by other organizations, sometimes even governments, and even by the NGOs themselves. And these side events have become super popular over the years. Uh, in Paris, there was about 200. And so the Malaysian Youth Delegation, which many have already heard about, they have been representing Malaysian youths at these side events, at the COPS, uh, since, if I'm not mistaken, 2017. So that is at the international level. Um, at the national level, you know, groups like the Malaysian Youth Delegation, Climate Action Malaysia, Malaysia, Greenpeace Malaysia, they also play a very important role uh, at this level. Uh, They can of course raise awareness on climate change locally, they can lobby government agencies uh, to improve certain aspects of our governance. One important thing is that our ministries, uh, this is actually also mandated under the UNFCCC, uh, they need to have public consultation sessions on any decisions or when they have plans, for example, with the National Adaptation Plan, they will call for public consultation sessions um, where they invite all kinds of stakeholders, civil society, academia, where we can also feed, give some feedback on their policies and plans. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I've been involved in a few of this and a lot of NGOs as well uh, will come and give their opinions and this will uh, influence the final product. So um, if People like you and me want to get involved in this kind of stuff. Uh, if we are, if we engage and if we get directly involved in NGOs, uh, which generally get invited to this kind of stuff, this is a good way to uh, be invited or be included in these meetings. Uh, of course, all this comes down to, I mean, it won't happen unless we, the public, are really informed and really empowered. So this information and empowerment is uh, really important in ensuring your ability to engage with climate governance, both internationally and at a national level. So uh, we like to say that a citizen that is informed and empowered will support climate accountability and action from the government and businesses. And a citizen that is informed and empowered will also take our own personal climate steps of our own as well, so not just talk right? We will also take our own steps. So, um, which comes back to, I guess, our bite-sized climate action, which you have mentioned so kindly. Uh, So, uh, you know, over here, we we have developed uh, some flexible, fun, and immersive uh, online modules, especially for Malaysians, uh, very Malaysian-focused. So, we at UM and University of Nottingham, Malaysia, uh, it's free for all, and it will really help Hopefully, we hope that it will be able to help Malaysian students and Malaysian public to get that information, to get that empowerment, to be able to engage more effectively
0: um, at the international as well as the
1: national level.
0: Yeah, I think what you said is really important. We need to be empowered to play a role, isn't it? And we do. I mean, everything that happens will come to affect us in some way or another. So the first step, of course, is to to uh, be empowered and to actually be informed. And I, I cannot, you know, recommend enough Bite Size Climate Action. It's so simple. The language is simple, uh, you know, very easy to digest. You can use it uh, even at <laughs> this age, and but also for students and for younger folk. You know, it's a wonderful way to learn more. Um, if anybody would like to find out more, they just need to head to Bite Size www.climateact.wixsite.com to find out more. Thank you so much, Helena, for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been great. I've been speaking to Associate Professor Dr. Helena Vaki. She's from the Department of International and Strategic Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Malaya, and as we just mentioned, a co-developer of Bite Size Climate Action. Just head to that website I mentioned to find out more and if you miss any part of this interview or any of our previous Earth Matters interviews, just head to bfm.my earth or you can head to the BFM app and download the episodes. Just search for There's No Planet B if you'd like to follow this series and, uh, and yeah, just find out how you can get involved. This has been Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes, BFM 89.9, the business station.